0: I was thunderstruck. For an instant I stood like the man who, pipe in mouth, was killed one cloudless afternoon long ago in Virginia by a summer lightning. At his own warm open window he was killed, and remained leaning out there upon the dreamy afternoon, till someone touched him when he fell. Not gone, I murmured at last, but again obeying that wondrous ascendancy which the inscrutable Scrivener had over me, and from which ascendancy, for all my chafing, I could not completely escape, I slowly went downstairs and out into the street, and while walking around the block, considered what I should next do in this unheard-of perplexity. Turn the man out by an actual thrusting I could not. To drive him away by calling him hard names would not do. Calling in the police was an unpleasant idea, and yet permit him to enjoy his cadaverous triumph over me. This, too, I could not think of. What was to be done? Or, if nothing could be done, was there anything further that I could assume in the matter?" Yes, as before, I had prospectively assumed that Bartleby would depart. So now I might retrospectively assume that departed he was. In the legitimate carrying out of this assumption, I might enter my office in a great hurry and, pretending not to see Bartleby at all, walk straight against him as if he were heir. Such a proceeding would, in a singular degree, have the appearance of a home thrust. It was hardly possible that Bartleby could withstand such an application of the doctrine of assumptions, but upon second thoughts, the success of the plan seemed rather dubious. I resolved to argue the matter over with him again. "'Bartleby,' said I, entering the office with a quietly severe expression, "'I am seriously displeased. I am pained, Bartleby. I had thought better of you. I had imagined you of such a gentlemanly organization that in any delicate dilemma a slight hint would have sufficed, in short, an assumption. But it appears I am deceived. Why?' I added, unaffectedly starting. "'You have not even touched that money yet,' pointing to it just where I had left it the evening previous.' He answered nothing. "'Will you or will you not quit me?' I now demanded, in a sudden passion, advancing close to him. "'I would prefer not to quit you,' he replied, gently emphasizing the not. "'What earthly right have you to stay here? Do you pay any rent? Do you pay my taxes? Or is this property yours?' He answered nothing. "'Are you ready to go on and write now? Are your eyes recovered?' Could you copy a small paper for me this morning, or help examine a few lines, or step around to the post office? In a word, will you do anything at all to give a coloring to your refusal to depart the premises? He silently retired into his hermitage. I was now in such a state of nervous resentment that I thought it but prudent to check myself at present from further demonstrations. Bartleby and I were alone. I remembered the tragedy of the unfortunate Adams and the still more unfortunate Colt in the solitary office of the latter, and how poor Colt, being dreadfully incensed by Adams and imprudently permitting himself to get wildly excited, was, at unawares, hurried into his fatal act, an act which certainly no man could possibly deplore more than the actor himself. Often it had occurred to me in my ponderings upon the subject that had that altercation taken place in the public street or at a private residence, it would not have terminated as it did. It was the circumstance of being alone in a solitary office, upstairs of a building entirely unhallowed by humanizing domestic associations, an uncarpeted office, doubtless of a dusty, haggard sort of appearance. This it must have been, which greatly helped to enhance the irritable desperation of the hapless cult. But when this old atom of resentment rose in me and tempted me concerning Bartleby, I grappled him and threw him. How? Why, simply by recalling the divine injunction, A new commandment give I unto you that ye love one another. Yes, this it was that saved me. Aside from higher considerations, charity often operates as a vastly wise and prudent principle, a great safeguard to its possessor. Men have committed murder for jealousy's sake, and anger's sake, and hatred's sake, and selfishness's sake, and spiritual pride's sake, but no man that ever I heard of ever committed a diabolical murder for sweet charity's sake. Mere self-interest, then, if no better motive can be enlisted, should, especially with high-tempered men, prompt all beings to charity and philanthropy. At any rate, upon the occasion in question, I strove to drown my exasperated feelings towards the Scrivener by benevolently construing his conduct. Poor fellow. Poor fellow, thought I. He don't mean anything, and besides, he's seen hard times and ought to be indulged. I endeavoured also immediately to occupy myself, and at the same time to comfort my despondency. I tried to fancy that in the course of the morning, at such time as might prove agreeable to him, Bartleby, of his own free accord, would emerge from his hermitage and take up some decided line of march in the direction of the door. But, no, half-past twelve came, Turkey began to glow in the face, overturn his inkstand and become generally obstreperous, nippers abated down into quietude and courtesy, Ginger Nut munched his noon apple, and Bartleby remained standing at his window in one of his profoundest dead-wall reveries. Will it be credited? Ought I to acknowledge it? That afternoon, I left the office without saying one further word to him. Some days now passed, during which, at leisure intervals, I looked a little into Edwards on the will and Priestly on Necessity. Under the circumstances, those books induced a salutary feeling. Gradually, I slid into the persuasion that these troubles of mine touching the Scrivener had been all predestinated from eternity, and Bartleby was billeted upon me for some mysterious purpose of an all-wise providence, which it was not for a mere mortal like me to fathom. "'Yes, Bartleby, stay there behind your screen,' thought I. "'I shall persecute you no more. You are harmless and noiseless as any of these old chairs. In short, I never feel so private as when I know you are here. At last, I see it. I feel it. I penetrate to the predestinated purpose of my life. I am content. Others may have loftier parts to enact, but my mission in this world, Bartleby, is to furnish you with office room for such period as you may see fit to remain. I believe that this wise and blessed frame of mind would have continued with me had it not been for the unsolicited and uncharitable remarks obtruded upon me by my professional friends who visited the rooms. But thus it often is, that the constant friction of illiberal minds wears out at last the best resolves of the more generous. Though, to be sure, when I reflected upon it, it was not strange that people entering my office should be struck by the peculiar aspect of the unaccountable Bartleby and so be tempted to throw out some sinister observations concerning him. Sometimes an attorney having business with me and calling it my office, and finding no one but the scrivener there, would undertake to obtain some sort of precise information from him touching my whereabouts. But without heeding his idle talk, Bartleby would remain standing immovable in the middle of the room. So after contemplating him in that position for a time, the attorney would depart no wiser than he came. Also, when a reference was going on, and the room full of lawyers and witnesses and business was driving fast, Some deeply occupied legal gentleman present, seeing Bartleby wholly unemployed, would request him to run round to his, the legal gentleman's office, and fetch some papers for him. Thereupon, Bartleby would tranquilly decline, and yet remain idle as before. Then the lawyer would give a great stare and turn to me. And what could I say? At last I was made aware that, all through the circle of my professional acquaintance, a whisper of wonder was running round, having reference to the strange creature I kept at my office— This worried me very much, and as the idea came upon me of his possibly turning out a long-lived man, and keep occupying my chambers and denying my authority, and perplexing my visitors, and scandalizing my professional reputation, and casting a general gloom over the premises, keeping soul and body together to the last upon his savings, for doubtless he spent but half a dime a day, and in the end perhaps outlive me and claim possession of my office by right of his perpetual occupancy... As all these dark anticipations crowded upon me more and more, and my friends continually intruded their relentless remarks upon the apparition in my room, a great change was wrought in me. I resolved to gather all my faculties together and forever rid me of this intolerable incubus. Ere revolving any complicated project, however, adapted to this end, I first simply suggested to Bartleby the propriety of his permanent departure— In a calm and serious tone, I commended the idea to his careful and mature consideration. But having taken three days to meditate upon it, he apprised me that his original determination remained the same, in short, that he still preferred to abide with me. "'What shall I do?' I now said to myself, buttoning up my coat to the last button. "'What shall I do? What ought I to do? What does conscience say I should do with this man, or rather, ghost? Rid myself of him I must. Go, he shall.' But how? You will not thrust him, the poor, pale, passive mortal. You will not thrust such a helpless creature out of your door. You will not dishonor yourself by such cruelty. No, I will not. I cannot do that. Rather, would I let him live and die here, and then mason up his remains in the wall? What then will you do? For all your coaxing, he will not budge. Bribes he leaves under your own paperweight on your table. In short, it is quite plain that he prefers to cling to you. Then something severe, something unusual, must be done. What? Well, surely you will not have him collared by a constable and commit his innocent power to the common jail. And upon what ground could you procure such a thing to be done? A vagrant, is he? What? He, a vagrant, a wanderer who refuses to budge? Is it because he will not be a vagrant, then, that you seek to count him as a vagrant? That is too absurd. No visible means of support. There I have him. Wrong again, for indubitably, he does support himself, and that is the only unanswerable proof that any man can show of his possessing the means so to do. (sighs) No more then, since he will not quit me, I must quit him. I will change my offices, I will move elsewhere and give him fair notice, that if I find him on my new premises, I will then proceed against him as a common trespasser. Acting accordingly, next day I thus addressed him. I find these chambers too far from the city hall. The air is unwholesome. In a word, I propose to remove my offices next week and shall no longer require your services. I tell you this now in order that you may seek another place. He made no reply, and nothing more was said. On the appointed day, I engaged carts and men, proceeded to my chambers, and having but little furniture, everything was removed in a few hours. Throughout, the scrivener remained standing behind the screen which I directed to be removed the last thing. It was withdrawn, and being folded up like a huge folio left him the motionless occupant of a naked room. I stood in the entry watching him a moment while something from within me upbraided me. I re-entered with my hand in my pocket and... and my heart in my mouth. Goodbye, Bartleby. I am going. Goodbye, and God someway bless you, and... Take that. "'slipping something in his hand. "'But it dropped upon the floor, "'and then, strange to say, "'I tore myself from him whom I had so long to be rid of. "'Established in my new quarters, "'for a day or two I kept the door locked "'and started at every footfall in the passages. "'When I returned to my rooms after any little absence, "'I would pause at the threshold for an instant "'and attentively listen, ere applying my key. "'But these fears were needless. "'Bartleby never came nigh me.' I thought all was going well when a perturbed-looking stranger visited me, inquiring whether I was the person who had recently occupied rooms at number blank Wall Street. Full of forebodings, I replied that I was. Then, sir, said the stranger who proved a lawyer, you are responsible for the man you left there. He refuses to do any copying, he refuses to do anything, he says he prefers not to, and he refuses to quit the premises. I am very sorry, sir, said I with assumed tranquility but an inward tremor. But "'Really, the man you allude to is nothing to me. "'He is no relation or apprentice of mine "'that you should hold me responsible for him.' "'Well, in Mercy's name, who is he?' "'I certainly cannot inform you. "'I know nothing about him. "'Formerly I employed him as a copyist, "'but he has done nothing for me now for some time past. "'I shall settle him, then. Good morning, sir.' "'Several days passed, and I heard nothing more. "'And though I often felt a charitable prompting "'to call at the place and see poor Bartleby,' Yet a certain squeamishness of I know not what withheld me. "'All is over with him by this time,' thought I at last, when through another week no further intelligence reached me. But coming to my room the day after, I found several persons waiting at my door in a high state of nervous excitement. "'That's the man. Here he comes,' cried the foremost one, whom I recognized as the lawyer who had previously called upon me alone.' "'You must take him away at, uh, at once,' cried a portly person among them, advancing upon me and whom I knew to be the landlord of number blank Wall Street. "'These gentlemen, my tenants, cannot stand it any longer. Mr. B,' pointing to the lawyer, "'has turned him out of his room and he now persists "'in haunting the building generally, "'sitting upon the banisters of the stairs by day "'and sleeping in the entry by night. "'Everybody is concerned. "'Clients are leaving the offices. "'Some fears are entertained of a mob, "'something you must do and that without delay.' Aghast at this torrent, I fell back before it, and would fain have locked myself in my new quarters. In vain I persisted that Bartleby was nothing to me, no more than to anyone else. In vain. I was the last person known to have anything to do with him, and they held me to the terrible account. Fearful, then, of being exposed in the papers, as one person present obscurely threatened... I considered the matter, and at length said that if the lawyer could give me a confidential interview with the Scrivener in his, the lawyer's, own room, I would that afternoon strive my best to rid them of the nuisance they complained of. Going upstairs to my old haunt, there was Bartleby, sitting silently upon the banister at the landing. What are you doing here, Bartleby? said I. Sitting upon the banister, he mildly replied. I motioned him into the lawyer's room, who then left us. Bartleby, said I, are you aware that you are the cause of great tribulation to me by persisting in occupying the entry after being dismissed from the office? No answer. Now, one of two things must take place. Either you must do something, or something must be done to you. Now, what sort of business would you like to engage in? Would you like to re-engage in copying for someone? No, I would prefer not to make any change. Would you like a clerkship in a dry goods store? There is too much confinement about that. No, I would not like a clerkship, but I am not particular. Too much confinement, I cried. Why, you keep yourself confined all the time. I would prefer not to take a clerkship, he rejoined, as if to settle that little item at once. Now, how would a bartender's business suit you? There is no trying of the eyesight in that. I would not like it at all, though, as I said before, I am not particular. His unwanted wordiness inspirited me. I returned to the charge. "'Well, then, would you like to travel through the country, collecting bills for the merchants? That would improve your health.' "'No. I would prefer to be doing something else.' "'How, then, would going as a companion to Europe to entertain some young gentleman with your conversation, how would that suit you?' "'Not at all. It does not strike me that there is anything definite about that. I like to be stationary, but I am not particular.' "'Stationary you shall be, then!' I cried, now losing all patience, and for the first time, in all my exasperating connection with him, fairly flying into a passion, "'If you do not go away from these premises before tonight, I shall feel bound—indeed, I am bound—to—to—to quit the premises myself!' I rather absurdly concluded, knowing not with what possible threat to try to frighten his immobility into compliance. Despairing of all further efforts, I was precipitately leaving him when a final thought occurred to me— "'one which had not been wholly unindulged before. "'Bartleby,' said I, in the kindest tone I could assume under such exciting circumstances, "'will you go home with me now, not to my office but to my dwelling, "'and remain there till we can conclude upon some convenient arrangement for you at our leisure. "'Come, let us start now, right away.' "'No, at present I would prefer not to make any change at all.' "'I answered nothing.' but effectually dodging everyone by the suddenness and rapidity of my flight, rushed from the building, ran up Wall Street towards Broadway, and jumping into the first omnibus was soon removed from pursuit. As soon as tranquility returned, I distinctly perceived that I had now done all that I possibly could, both in respect to the demands of the landlord and his tenants, and with regard to my own desire and sense of duty to benefit Bartleby and shield him from rude persecution. I now strove to be entirely carefree and quiescent and my conscience justified me in the attempt, although indeed it was not so successful as I could have wished. So fearful was I of being again hunted out by the incensed landlord and his exasperated tenants that, surrendering my business to nippers for a few days, I drove about the upper part of the town and through the suburbs in my Rockaway, crossed over to Jersey City and Hoboken, and paid fugitive visits to Manhattanville and Astoria. In fact, I almost lived in my Rockaway for the time." When again I entered my office, lo, a note from the landlord lay upon the desk. I opened it with trembling hands. It informed me that the writer had sent to the police and had Bartleby removed to the tombs as a vagrant. Moreover, since I knew more about him than anyone else, he wished me to appear at that place and make a suitable statement of the facts. These tidings had a conflicting effect upon me. At first, I was indignant, but at last almost approved. The landlord's energetic, summary disposition had led him to adopt a procedure which I do not think I would have decided upon myself, and yet, as a last resort, under such peculiar circumstances, it seemed the only plan. As I afterwards learned, the poor Scrivener, when told that he must be conducted to the tombs, offered not the slightest obstacle, but in his pale, unmoving way, silently acquiesced. Some of the compassionate and curious bystanders joined the party, and headed by one of the constables arm-in-arm with Bartleby, the silent procession filed its way through all the noise and heat and joy of the roaring thoroughfares at noon. The same day I received the note, I went to the tombs, or, to speak more properly, the halls of justice. Seeking the right officer, I stated the purpose of my call, and was informed that the individual I described was indeed within. I then assured the functionary that Bartleby was a perfectly honest man and greatly to be compassionated, however unaccountably eccentric. I narrated all I knew, and closed by suggesting the idea of letting him remain in as indulgent confinement as possible till something less harsh might be done, though indeed I hardly knew what. At all events, if nothing else could be decided upon, the almshouse must receive him. I then begged to have an interview. Being under no disgraceful charge, and quite serene and harmless in all his ways, they had permitted him freely to wander about the prison, and especially in the enclosed, grass-platted yard thereof. And so I found him there, standing all alone in the quietest of the yards, his face towards a high wall, while all around, from the narrow slits of the jail windows, I thought I saw peering out upon him, the eyes of murderers and thieves. Bartleby. I know you, he said without looking round, and I want nothing to say to you. It was not I that brought you here, Bartleby, said I, keenly pained at his implied suspicion, and to you this should not be so vile a place.' Nothing reproachful attaches to you by being here. And see, it is not so sad a place as one might think. Look, there is the sky, and here is the grass. I know where I am, he replied, but would say nothing more. And so I left him. As I entered the corridor again, a broad, meat-like man in an apron accosted me, and jerking his thumb over his shoulder said, That your friend? Yes, yes. You want to starve? If he does, let him live on the prison fare. that's all. "'Who are you?' asked I, not knowing what to make of such an unofficially speaking person in such a place. "'I'm the grub man. Such gentlemen as have friends here hire me to provide them with something good to eat.' "'Is this so?' said I, turning to the turnkey. He said it was. "'Well then,' said I, slipping some silver into the grub man's hands, for so they called him, "'I want you to give particular attention to my friend there. Let him have the best dinner you can get, and you must be as polite to him as possible. "'Introduce me, will you?' said the grub man, looking at me with an expression which seemed to say he was all impatience for an opportunity to give a specimen of his breeding. Thinking it would prove of benefit to the Scrivener, I acquiesced, and, asking the grub man his name, went up with him to Bartleby. Bartleby, this is mister Cutlets. You will find him very useful to you. Your servant, sir, your servant, said the grub man, making a low salutation behind his apron. Hope you find it pleasant here, sir. Spacious grounds, cool apartments, sir. Hope you'll stay with us some time. Try to make it agreeable. May Mrs. Cutlets and I have the pleasure of your company to dinner, sir, in Mrs. Cutlet's private room. I prefer not to dine today, said Bartleby, turning away. It would disagree with me. I am unused to dinners. So saying, he slowly moved to the other side of the enclosure, and took up a position fronting the dead wall. Well, how's this? said the grub man, addressing me with a stare of astonishment. He's odd, ain't he? I I think he's a little deranged, said I sadly. "'Deranged? Deranged, is it? Well, now, upon my word, I thought that friend of yourn was a gentleman forger. They're always pale and genteel like them forgers. I can't pity him. Can't help it, sir. Do you know Monroe Edwards?' he added touchingly and paused, then laying his hand pityingly on my shoulder, sighed. "'He died of consumption at Sing Sing. So you weren't acquainted with Monroe?' "'No, I was never socially acquainted with any forgers.' But I cannot stop longer. Look to my friend, Yonder. You will not lose by it. I will see you again. Some few days after this, I again obtained admission to the tombs and went through the corridors in quest of Bartleby, but without finding him. I saw him coming from his cell not long ago, said a turnkey. Maybe he's gone to loiter in the yards. So I went in that direction. Are you looking for the silent man? said another turnkey passing me. Yonder, he lies, Sleeping in the yard there. does not twenty minutes since I saw him lie down. The yard was entirely quiet. It was not accessible to the common prisoners. The surrounding walls of amazing thickness kept off all sounds behind them. The Egyptian character of the masonry weighed upon me with its gloom, but a soft imprisoned turf grew underfoot. The heart of the eternal pyramids, it seemed, wherein, by some strange magic, through the clefts, grass-seed dropped by birds had sprung." Strangely huddled at the base of the wall, his knees drawn up and lying on his side, his head touching the cold stones, I saw the wasted Bartleby. But nothing stirred. I paused, then went close up to him, stooped over and saw that his dim eyes were open. Otherwise he seemed profoundly sleeping. Something prompted me to touch him. I felt his hand when a tingling shiver ran up my arm and down my spine to my feet. The round face of the grub man peered upon me now. His dinner's ready. Won't he dine today either, or does he live without dining? Lives without dining, said I, and closed his eyes. Eh, he's asleep, ain't he? With kings and counselors, murmured I. There would seem little need for proceeding further in this history. Imagination will readily supply the meagre recital of poor Bartleby's interment, But ere parting with the reader let me say that if this little narrative has sufficiently interested him to awaken curiosity as to who Bartleby was and what manner of life he led prior to the present narrator's making his acquaintance, I can only reply that in such curiosity I fully share, but am wholly unable to gratify it. Yet here I hardly know whether I should divulge one little item of rumour which came to my ear a few months after the Scrivener's decease. Upon what basis it rested I can never ascertain, and hence how true it is I cannot now tell. But inasmuch as this vague report has not been without certain strange suggestive interest to me, however sad, it may prove the same with some others, and so I will briefly mention it. The report was this, that Bartleby had been a subordinate clerk in the dead-letter office at Washington, from which he had been suddenly removed by a change in the administration. When I think over this rumor, I cannot adequately express the emotions which seize me. Dead letters. Does it not sound like dead men? Conceive a man, by nature and misfortune prone to a pallid hopelessness, can any business seem more fitted to heighten it than that of continually handling these dead letters and assorting them for the flames? For by the cartload they are annually burned. Sometimes from out the folded paper the pale clerk takes a ring. The finger it was meant for perhaps molders in the grave. A banknote sent in as charity, he whom it would relieve nor eats nor hungers any more. Pardon for those who died despairing. Hope, for those who died unhoping. Good tidings for those who died stifled by unrelieved calamities. On errands of life, these letters speed to death. Oh, Bartleby. Oh, humanity.